Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good afternoon, it's Sally Hughes and Kate Severe here. Um, nice to see you, hear you, talk to you. Um, we are back, sorry about last month, but we are um, back in our regular slot between two and four. And co-hosting again is journalist Kate Severe. And today we've got two guests that I'm really, really chuffed with. Um, we've got Joel Golby, who is a journalist and he's worked for all sorts of people from Vice, The Guardian, Shortlist, FHM and so on. Um, but you may know him best for the piece, uh, the extract from his new book that went viral last week via The Guardian website. So we're going to be talking a lot about his book. Um, we also have Deja Ayadeli. She is... Um, an aesthetician. I find it really hard to say that word. I'm generally good with pronunciations, but um, I'm not at all good with that. Um, she is the founder of the Black Skin Directory, um, which is a very necessary organisation she has set up, and we're going to talk to her more about that. That was Madonna, Papa Don't Preach, and um, the reason we have a playlist all about family today, um, and one of the reasons we have Joel here, is family. So for me, I suppose, the one good thing that has come out of a really horrible situation for Meghan Markle is that more people are thinking about the fact that some families are estranged, hmm. that there are some family members estranged from another. I have experienced necessary family estrangement in my own family. Uh, Kate, you were mentioning before about your father, Deja, you were talking about that too. Um, and I, I think it's overdue because I think probably most of us have felt at some time or another people saying, oh, well, he's your dad, or, oh, it's mm -hmm. your mum, or blood is thicker than water, yeah. as though there are some things in yeah. life you just don't do, right? Mm. Yep. Yeah, you couldn't mm. possibly do that. He's your father. That's your mother. You're not allowed. I mean, it's completely unacceptable in, yeah. in most people's eyes. Yeah. And we are still seeing some of that in the media, but... I'm also hearing people on social media saying, oh, well, I don't blame her, whereas perhaps five years ago they would have said to someone like me, you must sort it out, you'll be sad when she's dead or you'll be yes. sad when they're dead, which is the other <laughs> yeah, thing people yeah. say. You'll be yeah. sad when they're dead. Well, yeah. yes, obviously. I am. Both I'm my sad. parents are dead. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sad now. I'm, I'm sad we don't have a relationship. I'm sad that you don't um, know your grandchildren on my side anyway. But, you know, I'm, I'm sad about all of that. But I'm not sad enough to put myself in a situation where, you know, uh, where I'd, 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 I'd feel worse. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to have a certain... Preservation. There we go. That's the word. It, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Because you think, well, I am definitely sad with the way it is. I will be super sad when that person dies, whether they're a sibling or a parent. But in the interim, am I prepared to surrender my everyday happiness to try and mitigate that mm -hmm. yeah. that feeling of grief later? And I think it's that biting point, isn't it, where you think, actually, no. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think, for, for me personally, um, you know, I've got my children, I've got my work, which I love, I've got my husband, you know, and I just think I've got my friends. I have so much love around me all the time. I'm not willing to be even a little bit unhappy to rectify something on the other side that I feel as the grown-up in the situation as mm -hmm. say my father being the grown-up in the situation I think it's almost on him not on me what we're hearing a lot about Meghan Markle is oh well he wants to see his grandchild she's pregnant but actually I think that's quite relevant because an awful lot of people decide to become estranged from family members as they're about to become parents themselves mm. because 
you sort of want to draw a line in the sand and say, no more, I'm breaking the cycle, yeah. this is not the yeah. life my children will have, they should be able to rely on grandparents or uncles and aunties. And this is where the cycle stops. Yeah, this is where it has to end, yeah. No, I, do, I don't have children, but that was one of the things that I that I thought about. It was like, okay, well, because I have a relationship with my dad now, but, you know, we didn't speak for seven, eight years, and that was one of the things where it's like, okay... If I if we if I do have kids, what do we what do we do? What does this look like? And if I'm if I'm you know in a situation where I'm I'm hurting and I'm and I'm upset and I can't deal with this relationship, I don't want to then pass that on to the, as you said the cycle kind of has to stop at some point. And I you know that it's, must it's be so healthy. painful. No, it's, it's not healthy. I mean, I think I'm I think I'm fortunate, and perhaps maybe the reason why I have found it easier to draw a line is because I've had amazing father figures in my life to the point where one of them I used to call dad um you know because I was always with him he he came to all my school shows I I literally was his last child um and that's my mum's sister's husband so I think that's why I've just found it really easy to say well actually I've, I've got other representation in my life um, so I can draw a line under you. If you don't want to act right, I can draw a line under you because there's someone else who was more than filling that spot. Um, and I've never, I've never even felt like I wasn't his child, my uncle. I've never even felt like I wasn't his child. So I just thought if my, if my own dad doesn't want to mm. act right, as I call it, then yeah. I'm I think, stepping away. I think there's a bleed out, isn't there, in that we... As much as I feel that this conversation about families that are fragmented or estranged um, is getting some traction and, and receiving a great deal more empathy from people, anything that makes people see families as complex and not always happy and and not you know not without compromise is a good thing. And so we've got Joel Golby with us. Um, he has written a book called Brilliant, 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 Brilliant. Annoying to say, I know. <laughs> Modern life as interpreted by someone who is reasonably bad at living it. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the book in its entirety. However, I want to start with the extract that um, appeared in The Guardian because it was so brilliant. I loved it. It was my favourite thing I'd read in ages. Um, and it was Joel writing about his experience as an orphan. I am also an orphan. And so um, it was quite interesting for me because there were lots of similarities and lots of huge differences. Your family was not disconnected in the way that we're describing. Um, but can you tell us, before we talk about the rest of the book, can you tell us a little bit about that extract for those who haven't read it? Yeah, well, before we start, we can't call ourselves orphans, apparently. I've had oh, some very angry... please explain that to me. Yeah, apparently, because... Uh, well, I don't know about you, cause, uh, but when I lost... My dad, I was 15, and then my mum, I was 25. That's uh, I didn't pass through the orphan loophole, so... I think it's you gotta be you gotta be a minor. There's there's a, a lot of orphan squabbles in my mentions at the moment. Wow. I'm I'm up in the air about it because as well. that's definitely the um, the issue that matters. Well, I'm here. appropriating <laughs> orphan culture and I'm trying to steal it for myself. You um, are literally a man with dreadlocks. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. I just want to say to the orphans out there, the legitimate ones. Uh, sorry about that, uh, but there is no word for it that I'm aware of. So yeah. So if there's no word for it, what? 
what are some of the symptoms of it emotionally? Symptoms. Two of the symptoms are, are dead parents. Yes. So those are the main physical symptoms. And then after that, uh, sort of a very strange cocktail of emotions, I'd say. Because grief is weird. Mm. Grief is um, super weird. Very weird. Yeah, and I'm starting to find that because it's been uh, about five, six years since uh, I completed the set. And so now a few of my friends are starting to lose one parent or, you know, family members. And, you know, I always get a little text like, hiya. And then I'll have to do my spiel about, like, oh, grief's weird, isn't it? And that's what You're going to be the go-to <laughs> guy, aren't you, for oh, years? Yeah. This is me Grief now. guy. This is my role. <laughs> We've got a whole WhatsApp group. It's horrible. <laughs> Loads of skulls in the uh, group name. But yeah, it's it's kind of weird because you can't prepare anyone for it. And it, <coughs> excuse me, always happens. Sorry, that's another physical symptom. <laughs> that just hasn't abated for six years. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's hard to, to ever um, prepare anyone, especially as in my in my personal experience, both both instances of grief were completely different felt completely different um you know one was a very long sort of uh crystallized one and then one was very short sharp shock sort of followed by and now here's a lot of paperwork and enjoy that like it's it's like hey um mum's dead but now you have a part-time office job having to organize all of her shit and that that was one that i was like oh okay you know, when do you find time to actually do the being sad bit? But I quite liked that in your piece because actually an awful lot of it is it is mundane and bureaucratic. Mm. And so my eldest brother, I have four <coughs> brothers, my eldest brother, Wynne, has been the sort of chancellor and um, civil servant with both parents' deaths. And, and it sort of, it, it delays the feeling, right? Mm, completely, yeah. And, and in a way... In a good way, because I think otherwise, if if you didn't quite have that thing to occupy you, you would just sort of literally sit around in in a room with the curtains drawn, sort of trying to do the the TV version of grief, where you you dress in black and you always have a a tissue in one hand and you don't have the TV on because you can't have fun when you're grieving and stuff like that, and you feel weird about the first time you laugh because like <laughs> that like the the first day when me and my sister went up on the train, we were laughing, but then we were like, oh shit, we're not supposed to, yeah, no, should we? Don't allowed. don't let anyone yeah. see us when we get it's into do not be laughing and stuff like that and you start to like second guess all of the very human actions you're making because you're like am i meant to be doing this is someone checking and that's quite weird you're trying to be appropriate aren't you because yeah. you're playing a part you haven't learned to play exactly so actually when someone does thrust like some paperwork in front of you or like go oh um by the way pick an outfit for your mum to be buried in and you're like oh Okay, well, it gives me something to do, at least, and that's nice. It's um, it it it's uh, I I don't know. I think um, with grief, you kind of with a lot of things in life, you expect a start and end point, and grief is quite open ended. Mm. Like you can get to a place where you're like, all right, cool, you know, not sad today, wicked. But then sometimes it will just hit you out of nowhere, and you'll be like, oh, I'll go have a sit down on a bench and I think, and that never really goes away, and again like there's there's no there's no prep for that there's no like here's what you have to know because you don't want to think about it either you don't want to do the preparation in case your parents die because who wants to think about that well especially when you're as young as you were because at that age until something like that happens you feel relatively invincible right yeah. like, you know you don't really think about the future so much you assume the status quo no, although intellectually you know yeah 
emotionally you're entrenched in the here and now aren't you i agree with you when you say um it's not it's 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 almost it's a delayed reaction um, because you have so many things to keep you busy my husband's um my father-in-law um passed away when we were on holiday one year a couple of years ago and we were on holiday and um that because he passed away in Nigeria and there was so much to organize um it didn't hit me my obviously my husband was devastated and and we decided to carry on the holiday because at the yes. time we had my daughter yeah. mm. and and because he's muslim he he was being buried mm-hmm. immediately the next day yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we wouldn't have had enough time to come back and go to Nigeria but we were we we kept ourselves by staying on holiday, kept ourselves busy right up until we had a celebration of life, which is forty, which was forty days after uh-huh. he died. And it's only then, and this celebration of life, it's it's a big party basically. Um, and they call each uh, each family member up into the dance floor. Literally, we're dancing. There's a band, and that's when it hit me when I was doing my little dance. And as per Nigerian culture or Yoruba culture, everybody was put, pinning money on me. Um, and all my husband's friends were there, and that's when it hit me that, gosh, daddy's died. Mm. Um, and that's when I started actually crying on this dance floor, yeah. thinking, I'm dancing here because my father-in-law's died. Mm. And because he died on my birthday, every single year, I have to take five minutes to go sit on a bench. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and Because it's my birthday. Yeah. Wow. It's weird how it just kind of... It does just hit you. My grandfather died this past summer, and because of what was going on in my life here, I couldn't get back for the funeral. And I remember I, I did a cry and that sort of thing, and would look at the pictures and do a little cry, and all right. And then it was probably like two months later, I was walking down the street, and this man passed in front of me, and I could smell his cologne. It reminded me of my grandfather. And I turned to my husband, and I was like, oh, he smells like Papa did. I really want to go and give him a hug. And then we were walking, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, it and then I got in the house. And I was like, oh, like just one of those, and I had to sit on the kitchen floor for probably twenty minutes and just have a weird sort of breakdown, and then I was fine again. But it just kind of like hits you over the back of the head out of nowhere some days. I think what Absolutely. what hit a nerve with me about Joel's piece is this sort of it, it is the need to be appropriate and to be seen to behave appropriately, because when I've gone through grief, I have as Joel says, worried about how I appear from the outside world. Do I look sad enough? Do I look upset enough? But also selfishly become really depressed about my own mortality when actually it's not about me, it's about them. Thought about that tons, thought about it pretty much every day for years after my friend died. And also extreme anger Mm. all the time and wishing other people dead all the time, which Mm. is something I did for about two years after a friend of mine died because she died so young and so unjustly, in my view, that I would see people on the telly and think, well... I don't see why you get to be alive when... Mm. when yeah. yeah, you start mentally arranging the death meter. <laughs> you do. Yeah, yeah, it becomes yeah. people yeah. go into a sorting hat. You yeah, know, yeah. you yeah. just think, well, hang on, if my lovely friend died, then yeah. what, you know, yeah. why... You stay, you stay, but... Yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you go. Let's you're really, you're, you're, you're quite elderly now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kill, yeah. kill, kill, kill. <laughs> you can stay. But I did, I did that for ages, and it just comes back to this point. If you don't really know what to do, and I think... I don't know what happened with you, Joel, but after each of my parents died and a close friend of mine died, people would always say, take time to grieve, make sure you grieve. And I would always think, I don't know what that is. Like, what, what is, is, is what are you active, telling me to do? There's no grieving it's machine verb, you can run on. No, there's nothing. Like, when my dad died, my, my most active form of grieving was playing 
Sega GT 2002 on the original Xbox, um, where I'd set up uh, a sort of mix CD as the custom soundtrack, and I got my most basic car up to sort of F1 speeds on the same six. So tracks. you did do the curtains close phase in the yeah, end. You got yeah, there. Yeah. But to be honest, <laughs> if, if you gave 15 year old me six weeks to myself. I would have done that anyway. It wasn't that different. It was just slightly, it was slight. I can't play that game again. Like, I played it into the ground because that's the dead dad game. But, like, yeah, you, um, there's no active way of doing it. And also, people, people hug in very close to you when it immediately happens to try and sort of contain the explosion. And then I think when, when they're one shell removed from it, the funeral is the funeral the is there, full stop. Yeah. And then you go home and you, you do the wake or whatever, and then you wake up the next day and you don't go like, boom, smash that funeral, ready to go back to my real life again. But everyone else sort of, obviously, because they got shit to do, they sort of fade out and, the, yeah. and they don't quite so often go like, how are you? Or like, would you like a cup of tea and a bit of cake? And like stuff like that. Yeah. So after that sort of, you know cultural end point Mm. a lot of people sort of go back to they go okay my hands are washed fine we need that symbolism don't we of the the funeral but Mm -hmm. of course that's not how your mind works no and so you got it so both grieving periods were quite different for you weren't they because Mm -hmm. you were at different stages in your life nothing prepares you for the second time right if the circumstances are different weirdly because we were just saying about thinking about mortality and thinking about your parents dying i i never actually sort of had that thought where i was like what do i do if my parents die because i sort of never had the chance like with with dad it was 15 i I just never as a teenager gone like what would happen tomorrow if my if my parents died and then uh, one did and i was like "Eh, play a lot of xbox it turns out i've got one in reserve yeah exactly we've got it's, it's like kidneys you can lose one and then when the second one goes you're like oh Okay, and that's that's very different because it feels like some sort of mental walls are crumbling and, and you don't quite realise, you know, the first crisis that happens post that grief and you're like, okay, I've got to call someone and then you go, oh, fuck, who's mum now? Like, who takes that role? That's really interesting. So who? So what did you do, call a friend or I'm, a sister? Uh, yeah, I'm very lucky that I have a, an older sister um, who, you know who sorted all the admin for dad and then it was like oh, I'll take this one for mum it's my turn and stuff like that and we have a great close relationship and she's 14 years older than me so so sort of has done the life has made all the mistakes I've done so get, when I make the phone call she's like oh okay you're here now get you so she would have been what 29 when your father died thereabouts <sighs> yep that would have been it um yeah all right, quick maths. Yeah, I'm very impressed with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I surprised so, myself. You know, she was she was a little older, but around the same age as I was when Mum went. So it was sort of she experienced them at, at different stages. But yeah, like she she became my de facto sort of not parent, but like parent shaped support system. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of times I have needed to rely on that. And when I do, you know, a part of me is going like. Uh, don't make this too weird. Like, don't don't overparent it because she's my sister, and you you want to keep that as a bro- preserve yeah, that yeah. relationship as well. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to change that and lean on it too much. To to what degree? Because because I've written about my grief in the past, and and pretty much everything 
I now write in my career and has been for the past 10 years has been in the first person, right? And that's quite an odd thing because I'm actually a really private person. Yeah. And it's a sort of balance of um, letting people think they're hearing everything, but actually they're not. But also there's a big degree of, with me at least, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts, with something like grief, of it helping me work out how I feel myself. I'm better able to work it out on a on a Word document than I am in my head sometimes. Was it a process for you or had you worked out how you felt about it before you sat down? There were a couple of pieces I wrote in the in the more immediate aftermath of my mum dying that were just for me. That were which I actually very rarely do. Like essentially since I started getting bylines. I stopped writing for myself, which is, you know, how you learn to write when you're coming up. You you write pieces that you show to three close friends or save on your desktop and never open, and you have stuff for yourself, and then suddenly when you realise, OK, I can get word right, let's do it, you kind of lose that part. And and when Mum died, I, I wrote a piece that I think I've shown to two people, possibly three, um, and that is not normally my coping strategy for things but I did I did write that one piece and that maybe helped sort of straighten a few bricks in my head but when I when I came around to writing this opening essay for the book which is a sort of extended version of of one I wrote about four years ago when I first started working at Vice it felt more like sort of looking back on a an experience um you know, through the lens of perspective rather than working it out on the page, uh, which helped. I think if, if there was too much of a an element of self-therapy to that, it, it wouldn't quite have struck as, as many people in the way it did. Um, That's my golden rule for everything, actually. As a columnist, never write breaking news. That's mm. a reporter's job. If you write breaking news, you're in trouble emotionally, I think, in that, you know, you, you put yourself out there in a way that you wouldn't two weeks from now, and that's not helpful to you, probably. Yeah, yeah your immediate reaction is almost always the wrong one. That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think you're right. <laughs> I think I think that's probably goes across a lot of things in life yeah, doesn't yeah. it if if you're an impulsive person then which i can i can be it's usually like you need to pull back yeah pull back let's yeah. let's like when you think yeah. you're gonna cut a fringe yeah 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 Right, I'm going to put another record on because actually um, Joel's excellent book is not all doom and gloom. It's not a book about no, it's grief. Fun. Let's, let's... It's not a book about grief there's, um, or indeed only family. There's an awful lot going on here. So, so we'll talk about that when we come back and also Deja's work. But continuing with the family theme for now, I'm going to put on some Bill Withers. in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand That was a very swift silence there. People were hysterical and I realised the song was finishing. It's uh, Grandma's Hands, Bill Withers. Love that song. Um, I played that last night my kids came running in thinking it was no diggity. But that is the original from which it was sampled. Uh, so we were talking to Joel Golby before about his new book, which is quite literally brilliant, 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 brilliant. Modern life as interpreted by someone who is reasonably bad at living it. Um, obviously still here is Kate Severe um, and Deja Ayadeli. And we were talking about Joel's book, which opens with this incredibly sort of 
painful but but real and funny and human uh, story of becoming an orphan. Not that he's allowed to say that, it turns out. But then, Joel, I think it's important for us to say this is not a book about grief, is it? No, no. We've really got we've really got to stress the fact that this is a funny one because the the first extract was. A little bit of a downer, and <laughs> uh, so is the second, which was sort of about my slightly complex relationship with drinking, which kind of bookended the book. So both the opening and closing essays are like a little bit melancholy but funny with it, and then in the middle, that gets a little bit weird. And I, I do really want to stress that it's not just all... You know, wow, wow, my parents are dead, but I don't know. You're not just the grief guy. Yeah, the grief grief guy works, actually, instead of orphan, doesn't it? Yeah, grief guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't date him, but... No, it's not a Tinder bio, is it? (laughs) It's not a Guardian Soulmates nom de plume, is it, a grief guy? He was just really sad. (laughs) Yeah, he just had this whole grief thing going on. So, um, why are you bad, reasonably bad, at living life? Um... Oh, I mean, the, the real answer to that is, good God, we needed a subtitle because the title for the book was brilliant, 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 brilliant. Brilliant? Did you've I get You've got five there? of them. No, you've got one to go. Brilliant. And that's both irritating to say repeatedly and says nothing about the book, which is a sort of series of essays. And when we were first sort of trying to come up with the idea of what I wanted to do with the book, a lot of it was sort of... Um, you know, a, a reflection on modern life and, and there were a few avenues we explored where it was a little bit like, why don't we tell millennials how to live and how to do things? And I was like, I don't really know that. And sort of, I, you know, again, don't want to get too griefy because to reiterate the book is funny, but one of... What, <laughs> no, really, I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm funny, good God. But, uh, you know, one of one of the, the themes throughout the grief essay is I don't know what I'm doing. And that definitely runs through the rest of the book as well, constantly, whenever I come up against anything new. Do you think new. there's a thread in millennial journalism that is, oh, my God, I don't know what... I'm doing because I feel like I, I I hear that obviously written in a million different ways. Yeah. But I do feel like there's a generation of people who kind of feel like where are the grown ups and suddenly they're grown because you can't <laughs> get a flat no anymore, you yeah. can't get a house <laughs> anymore. You, yeah. That's such yeah. a huge part of it is you can't you can't hope you can't expect stability um, in the same way that even a generation before might have done. So people who who were my age now, which is 31, like if you were that age 10 years ago, even 10 years ago, you would be in a sort of better position than we are now. And the rules have changed so quickly and, and the cultural expectation has not caught up with that. And I think a lot of millennial journalism and just sort of, you know, millennial outcry in general is won't ever won't people please understand that this isn't easy like we we can't like buying a flat is is, well in in a major city like this it's not it's not easy out of london either but london really sort of uh personifies the whole uh nightmare is it's it's very difficult it's close to impossible if you're a single person which makes the idea of making sure you couple up with the right person suddenly becomes a, a sort of higher stress thing and then you you throw in dating apps that sort of casualize the, the whole thing and then you're you've suddenly stretched very thin across <laughs> like three points where you're like over here you've got 
what was fated as easy access to casual sex but is now just the way we date now and then over here you have everyone quite wants to be able to put some shelves up in their house but they can't because they're renting and then over here you have the constant march of time and then when you look even one generation and back it, and employment instability mm. yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. zero hours contracts zero hours and, and salaries that haven't matched up with inflation so we're, we're technically worse off and stuff like that but we're still all shooting for the old not as broadly but you know kind of culturally we're still shooting for like okay stable relationship buy a house buy a house yeah. have a kid it's mm-hmm. interesting isn't it because it, what you're essentially saying is the aspirations are as old as time still yeah yes but there's a perceived level of sophistication i think and and i think it's a justifiable perception of sophistication in that we're all sort of tech savvy and we have access to things and there's a perception that people's emotional sophistication should be yeah. the same as their sort of lifestyle and access to things. And I think that's that's where the discrepancy is. People think, well, buck up, everything's great for you, but actually the emotional experience yeah. is not. Yeah, it's basically like, come on, cheer up, you've got an iPhone. Yeah. And we go, yeah, it's good, yeah. but I can't live in it. Yeah. Well, that's basically it. And like, you know, the the expectations have, you know, the, the goalposts have shifted. Like friends of mine who I who I can look at and consider like, okay, they've got their lives together are like the ones that have a dog. Because even at that, even in this city, being able to own a dog is quite an administrative. Like you need to be able to get a flat no where you can work. call your yeah. landlord. You've and got know to, when you're coming home from work. Know when you're coming yeah. home. You know, have your dog care in place if you can't make it. Stuff like that. Even that is overcomplicated by, you know, the the thin stretch we're living in. So, to what degree is um, lack of privacy a factor? Because so I. I worry about this all the time. My children are obviously not millennials, they're teenagers, but um, I feel like privacy's done. It's gone. Everything you do can be photographed, posted, described in feedback. It's terrifying. I think I, when I was young, I would have found that incredibly inhibiting. Yeah. I think we're probably about a year and a half away from all realising that because it's easy to look at it as, as a whole from the outside in and go yeah we, man we are oversharing we all are um and there's you know you can lock down your facebook profile and you can have a private instagram and you can choose not to engage in it but the point is that everything else has shifted around that where it makes it the norm so you're kind of the weirdo if you don't have an instantly accessible instagram account or if you don't yeah. tweet and that's that's got to pull back soon. Like, that's a pendulum swing waiting to happen, I think. I think it's starting to... It was in, certainly in my circles, especially as people have children, it's yeah. starting to happen a bit. For example, I don't allow my children anywhere. Most people are surprised that I have a five-year-old and you have a child and she's five. How? Because... <laughs> she doesn't have her own Instagram account Yeah, already. because people, oh people think... I think it's that thing where people think they know so much about you because you have an Instagram. He's like, yeah. No, you don't, actually. There's a lot. You, you, you control what you put yeah, out there. Yeah. But obviously there's some people who've made a whole career out of sharing everything that goes on in their like, lives. But I also think it's, it's terribly upsetting and disconcerting for any person to make the natural connection between or com- comparison between their interior and someone's exterior, which is what mm-hmm. we do all the time, right? So so we see people's 
exterior lives and we compare it with our interior life and we fall short inevitably because you of always course, will. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. And that's the entire relationship. Yeah. And if if we don't have any privacy, I mean we're we're already seeing it now. Nobody can make a mistake. You can't make a mistake because if you say the wrong thing and I'm not being like, oh, liberal snowflakes, but like literally you cannot fuck up. Yeah. No, not even right you, now. You, even if you made a mistake 10 years ago. Yeah, if you had the still... wrong opinion in 2012. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. it's true. And all of us like writing 10 years ago, I mean, if people saw some of the blogs, I'm sure that we all wrote 10 years ago, oh, it's okay. like, oh, Christ, yeah, you okay, know. Yeah. And now with kids growing up with that, I mean, I thankfully... I mean, we just had MySpace after I had graduated, so I did not have social media. I mean, like, the most complicated it got was, like, MSN Messenger and AOL homepages and that sort of thing, you know? And thank fuck that we didn't have that stuff. I just don't, I don't know. I mean, especially reading through my own teenage diaries, I do not know how I would cope if that sort of thing were just blasted... Well, and, and just, would define you forever And would define more. you forever. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. just not allowed to evolve. You're not allowed to make a mistake or kind of grow up. Because it's just, it's a search result. It's just there. And it looks like it was done yesterday, you know. Yeah, I mean, I have a million regrets. I regret things I did last night. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, regret, like, mm-hmm. I regret things every time I leave somewhere, you know. I, yeah. I, I have regrets. Yeah. And so the idea that I would then be defined. But, but I mean, that's the same for all of us, though. Mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah, I could yeah. say something now that would ruin my life forevermore, regardless yeah. of your yeah, age, because that's the culture. Yeah. That's why we're all just sweating so much in here, <laughs> just you know, waiting. I mean, Funny enough, I have a lot of fun on Instagram with the hashtag. I, I, I haven't done it in a little while, but I have a lot of fun doing real life hashtags, as in this is my life. Mm. If you see me with, I don't know, a full face of makeup, I can guarantee you I probably had a child in a sling, my kitchen was a mess, and I will take pictures of all of it and say, real life. It is not mm. that glamorous, honestly. And I have a lot of fun doing it. And obviously, I know there's people who, who like having a perfect feed and everything looks great. And I just think to myself, mm, really, is it's it all boring? That? Yeah. You know, let's see a bit of let's see a bit of action. Let's see what's going on. Let, let's see your dirty dining table. You know, plates left out or something. You know, yeah. I, I find that more interesting yeah, but than then, a perfect it, feed. Then you get you get to the point where chaos itself becomes curated. <laughs> yeah, yes. no way out. People's grief becomes yeah. curated. Yeah. It's just it's yeah. oh god, it's exhausting. Okay, really well, exhausting. let's pep ourselves up with some James Brown. <laughs> I um, this is James Brown. Papa's got a brand new bag. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown. We are still here with Joel Golby, writer of brilliant, 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 brilliant. Modern life... I may have gone one too many there. Just do the <laughs> We don't need the whole subhead. Modern Let's... life as interpreted by someone who is reasonably bad at living it. Um, he's he's a brilliant writer, truly. It was... Um, I didn't know Joel at all. He's ended up on the show just because I, I read this piece and I just thought it was so completely brilliant. My husband loved it. I loved it. Um, lots of friends spoke to me about it as well. It's You must look it up. And the book comes out when? February 25th. First, my birthday. Your birthday. Um, we've also got Deja Ayadeli here. She is the founder of the Black Skin Directory. So Kate's going to have a chat with her about um, how it all came about and why. Hi. Hello. Tell us everything. Wow. <laughs> okay. So Black Skin Directory. So I work in a, as an aesthetician and that's what I've done for going on 10 Can years. Can you walk us through what exactly that means? It's so a good word. We work in, that I I work in skin care. Yes. We help to preserve skin health. Into it. 
Yes. So we do things like, uh, so you come and visit us if you're having any sort of skincare problems, whether it be acne or melasma or hyperpigmentation. We can do treatments like chemical peels, laser, traditional facials, um, micro needling, so all sorts of things to help preserve your skin health and help put you on a path to a skin that you're a lot happier in. Yeah, and I will listen to whatever you say because your skin is amazing. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. Post-peel, just post-peel. <laughs> had a peel last week. So um, Black Skin Directory, um, so I work in Kensington and um, I noticed I, I noticed the shift of having a lot of um, black women who would come and see me for various reasons. Some, some coming from as far as Birmingham to London wow. on a Sunday for a skin treatment with me. And I'd think to myself... Sorry, if you've not got anyone in Birmingham who can look after you, I mean, I appreciate your business, but, <laughs> you know, it seems... For me, I just couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah. Um, and then I'd have also black women come to see me saying, I've come to see you because you're black and I know you're going to understand my skin, you're going to understand where I'm coming from and all that sort of stuff. And because I'd worked in the industry and I've never thought along those lines about, I'll go and see that person for my skin because they're black, I've just gone, I'll go and see that person because I know their experience. I never put two and two together and thought, do you know, there's black women who are struggling to find skincare. I never, never, ever thought that. Right. Until this one springtime in 2017, and it hit me like a, a, a hammer on my head going, black women are struggling. Yeah. Um, and... And I went to a lot of, I, I, I go to a lot of conferences. I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of sitting in education just to, you know, keep my skills up. And I'd look around and th these auditoriums to go, I'm the only black person here. Yeah. Why is that? And all these things were coming at me. It was May 2017. They were all coming at me. Yeah. And I sat on the train one night and going home and I had this little notepad. In fact, I shared it on Instagram not too long ago. And I wrote this little mission saying Black Skin Directory, a website that connects women of colour with expert skincare professionals. And we'll talk about products, we'll talk about treatments and we'll have a little yellow pages where you can find practitioners who are experienced in skin of colour because it's one thing to sort of have the theory mm. that, yes, you know that black skin can hyperpigment very quickly, but it's another thing to actually um, have that footfall coming through your clinic so you're experienced in dealing yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, we, we want those people who have the footfall. Um, so One Woman Band, I made this thing up on the train, Charing Cross to Kent, um, and by the time I got home, I was determined... And luckily, the following week was Afro Hair and Beauty Show. Well, perfect. <laughs> so I knocked up this questionnaire and I roped in a friend of mine. I went, right, we're going to go stand outside the design centre in Islington. As all these black women traipse in to go and see this show, we're going to stop them and ask them these 10 questions. And what were they writing on the questionnaires? Because I, I suppose from my point of view, and and you'll agree with me just because of the, uh, the makeup of skin. Skin is skin is skin. Mm. And so when... I am sent things for men, for example. I read such bullshit about men's skin because it's like, no, it's skin. It is an organ. It's no, the it's same. tougher. It's extreme. It's, it's like, more I mean, prone they're, 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 to oddness. There's they physiological shave. differences. Yeah, you shave, so you're you, yeah. that's quite harsh every day, and you're more prone to oiliness. But in the, the structure of it, it's skin. skin. Mm. Yeah. So, what are the nuanced? differences so i suppose for black skin is that for example actually all skin black or white we all have the same amount of melanin in our skin 
melanin gives us our skin colour. But on black skin, melanin, the melanin cells are more active, so they kick off more melanin quite easily, quite quickly, which is why you hyperintent so quickly. Um, so that's a, that's the difference. Black skin, um, there's research that shows it on, on in, in the epidermis, we've got more more thick, more layers in the mm-hmm. epidermis as opposed to white skin, for example, as different to, say, Asian skin, for example. So there's slight physiological differences. Main difference being the activeness of the melanin, um, which is why for a lot of black women, regardless of what um, skin condition they've got, whether it's acne or the fact that they've got hyperpigmentation is key. The fact that it's not flawless is it's which I always call the secondary problem. Mm-hmm. Hyperpigmentation is a secondary problem to whatever you've got, but that issue of not being flawless is the biggest. It's the biggest thing, right? Um, so, so when I had all these women coming through, and so I went to went with this questionnaire, and basically we walked away, and 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 the feedback was that most black women that we spoke to felt they struggled or couldn't access a professional skincare service. They'd been turned away for service because be, because we live in this culture where um, you don't want to get it wrong. Clinics don't want to get things wrong. Yeah, yeah. So they've been turned away for service. So a lot of people turn into family and friends. Which is worse than making a mess. Oh, my God. Well, you don't... I don't know. I've seen some bad yeah, scarring on black true. women yeah. from dodgy laser that people haven't understood yeah. how to use on dark People skin. haven't even... Or, or, or women themselves, black women... So we had all these myths as well, you know. Black women, black skin, you don't need sun protection. Black skin can't have laser. And there were just so many things. I was like, no, 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 we need to correct this yeah. because you can have treatments. You can have laser. You do need to wear sunscreen. There was all these things yeah. that sort of made up the black skin directory mission. So we looked launched in february last year so we're a year to a year right now happy birthday thank you and i didn't for the life of me i did not think that it would it would have such a great reception um that it would be when i started getting messages from people in places like austria sweden australia saying this is such a fantastic thing that the fact that there's this resource this skewed just towards skin of yeah. colour. Um, and, and it is so helpful. It is so helpful to see how a condition presents on black skin. Because there's one thing you saying, oh, is, is, does the skin look red? Is it is it raised? And you're thinking, well, I'm as black as this. I, I'm not going to get red skin. My, so what else do I need to look for to see that I've got this particular condition? So I, I, I you know, even... Even if I see a friend that's got a particular condition, I say, can I take a picture of that so we can put it on the website so other people know what yeah. it looks like? Yeah. You know, and I, and, I, and I managed to get lots of images of how things look on black skin. And people find that really helpful. Like for, for, I, I just feel like it was just the right time where people were talking about diversity and mm-hmm. inclusivity and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And, but it just hit me with like such a surprise that people need this. And I didn't realise that it was a thing. But 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 I think I think that's a really big part of it. On the one hand, you're saying, well, people are talking about diversity. This has become such a key part, a key 
conversation in the beauty industry and you're absolutely right that's true and then on the other hand you're saying there's a massive need and therein lies the issue I think because what what does diversity look like in beauty so I, this is a conversation I have with brands quite a lot mm. all brands are completely obsessed at the moment with two things diversity and sustainability okay correct really late in the day but correct yeah, welcome yeah but correct yeah. these two things are super important mm. I mean you've come late to the party but nonetheless well, well, you anyway <laughs> but nonetheless you're right to be obsessed with these two changes that need to happen but it's brands understanding what that looks like mm -hmm. is it Putting a black girl in a campaign, well, I mean, that's something, but it's nowhere no, near. When you have four mm. shades of foundation, that's not... Well, and also I have mixed feelings about foundation. I'm a bit fed up of people saying we've got 70 fat colours of foundation, so we're diverse. I'm with you. I'm with because you. Because it's not about darkness. It's about undertone and understanding what skin looks like. And so there have been quite a few brands recently who've gone, hey, we've got 50 shades of foundation, but actually I play with them and they're like chalk. They're horrible. Yeah, if it's a shit product, it's a shit product. And that's... Yeah, and it... <laughs> And they're designed for white people, but in dark colours. That's yeah, the thing. yeah. The whole foundation thing, I think, is a bit overplayed. Anyway, um, yes, we have Fenty Beauty, um, and I love everything Fenty Beauty stands for. But Fenty Beauty is not for me. It's the quality's not, not as good as Mac or something. Well, not me. even that. I've, can I be honest? I've never tried it. Um, but for me, providing this many shades for black skin. Fenty Beauty was not the first brand to do it. We have Laura Mercier who did it for Iman did it Bobby. 20 years ago. Mm. Bobby mm. Brown has always done it. And, and I have personally, and I know this argument goes around and around and I hear it all the time in certain circles. I have never ever, from being a teenager to right now at 35, I have never struggled to find foundation at any price point. But, um, I, also, but I also think that the foundation, foundation thing, which, you know, it, it's a good soundbite. We've got 70 foundations or, or whatever it is. It doesn't, and we've got a beautiful brown girl or a black girl or whatever in the campaign. That doesn't really matter if that person then goes to counter and everyone on the counter is white or everybody mm. who's the designed the product that, is yeah, white exactly. or the person who hired the photographer the makeup artist cast yep. the models yep. is white so if everything behind the scenes is white it doesn't care how many foundations yeah. you have it's not a diverse it's, it's, you know it's, it's not it's not diverse it's not genuine what i'd like to see is brands smaller brands which have been developed by women of color i'd like to see them get some of the spotlight because Brands like Fenty have a lot of financial power behind yes. them to do so many things. And there's smaller brands out there um, designed by women of colour who who understand what other women of colour are looking for. Um, like, you know, MDM Flow, for example, or Malewa mm -hmm. in America, the Lip Bar. There's so many brilliant women of colour brands who are not getting anywhere in terms of exposure, mm -hmm. because they haven't got that financial power behind them. I That's the that. I had the founder of MDM to, yeah. Flow on my well, series for yeah. Women's Hour. There you go. So, so very good. That she is was what, too. That is what will actually make the industry, I think, diverse. Yes. Is is by letting the smaller brands through as well, was fronted by women of colour, owned by women of colour, rather than big spending brands with who everyone in the background is white saying, yeah, this is what you need, we've provided and now we've got 80 shades. Yeah. Uh, women of colour, interesting business factoid. I know very little about business but I do know this because I presented uh, Mary Portis's event at the British Library. Uh, women of colour are by far and away the fastest growing pool of entrepreneurs in the world. Yes. Partly so, because... So in, in America, women of colour start more businesses 
than any other uh, pro rata yeah. in real terms yeah. than any other group. Yeah, interesting. That's incredible. Because of a need, yes. driving the need. Oh, I, I, I can create this. I don't see that out there for for myself. I don't feel represented in that, so I'm going to create. And and I think that stat probably mirrors in the UK as well to some degree. There are a lot of women of colour owned businesses. Um, whether it be in hair care or skin, you know, skin care. Mm. But what they do need is a financial, yeah. It's a financial say, backing. How do we support other than just being like just buying the product? I think because a lot of times when you follow the money and you trace it back and you go, well, that's owned yeah. By I mean, some support in terms dudes. of just buying the product comes from sharing. Mm. Um, um, women of colour being able to access, say, journalists to to yeah. um, biz- business information teaching about business because it's one thing you're thinking I, could, I, I want to do this I, I, I can make this product but if you don't have the sort of business acumen behind it to, yeah. to, to sell it to, to promote it then that's where a lot of help is needed as well obviously as well as buying buying the product but I think um, it's it's a great time for um for women of color platforms and I think there's just a general feeling about getting making sure even within skincare itself regardless of beauty within skincare itself is a great time for ensuring that brands represent everyone yeah and who do you think is doing that really well wow who do I think is doing that really well in my field in, mm. in skincare I think brands that do a wide clinical trial, having all skin tones included. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's a brand, Neostrata, for example. They do really well in terms of making sure their research reflects skin of colour. Um, Estee Lauder do that as well. Estee Lauder were the first major brand. It was about 15 years ago I went to a launch and Estee Lauder said that their new moisturiser had been uh, tested on um, every significant ethnicity in America wow. and we all just went because oh, we assumed that that was already happening right? Yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah. And then, <laughs> you no, assume. no, no it, it doesn't but, always happen um, everyone assumed no. that that was just the case yeah. but Estee Lauder were the first ones who said every single skincare product will be tested on yeah and, and it's very important every that, major that, that racial happens group. because I have people I have to be able to speak confidently about, about, about a brand when someone comes to see me in clinic yeah I have to be able to even show some some visuals and I will always ask a brand um, how far did you go in your clinical trials and you'll find that sometimes when they come over to the UK they only go say as far as say an olive skin tone and at that point I'm like no we need to go darker you know you need to show how it works because people women of colour will look at something go yeah I know you say it works but that's it's worked on white skin how do I know it's going to work on mine and to a certain extent it's an unfounded fear because it will work but there's a barrier to get over and yeah. if you prevent if you present the entire clinical trial and all skin tones then that's much better but perception and culture is as important as scientific hard yeah. facts if the, you know if, if perception and culture is not aligned with the customer with the paying customer then there's a fault regardless Absolutely. of what the physiology yeah. is ever, and what the science is and yeah. if you only ever see you know the makeup and products used on white women on instagram in ad campaigns on tv you sign out yeah, exactly yeah. you go well that's not for yeah. me it, i mean it, it, I, I was researching this and the process called symbolic annihilation where if you don't see yourself represented mm-hmm, in something mm-hmm. over time after a while 
you just assume it's not for you yep. and you and you sign out of it. And sometimes I think brands make the mistake where they think they're talking to everyone yep. and and you say you do something as simple as look through their Instagram feed and you go, oh, I can count how many times you featured a darker skin model. Yeah. And no, you're not actually... And I and I have to do it a lot as part of Black Skin Narrative. I have to look... I can look at a brand's profile and go, well, we're not really hitting the mark there. Yeah. Um, and they don't know they're not carrying everyone with them. They just assume that everyone knows yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah. They assume that it's accessible to everyone. It's like, no, really, if you haven't said it, then... Yeah. You have to be explicit. You have to be explicit about it. Yeah, I think a lot of that too comes from who is in the room when they're making those decisions around their marketing campaigns, around their advertisement campaigns. If you just have a bunch of nice white ladies sat in a room making those decisions, then that's obviously, you know... Yeah, I mean, it it will be a reflection of the people in the room. And if you have more people in the room as diverse as possible, then you're you're going to be able to hit have more hits yep. around the de- different demographics. I mean, yes, sometimes there there are things or, or brands that, you know, they they're so small, they only cater for that one demographic and and, yeah. and, and that's fine if that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But if your brand is coming out and saying we're for everyone, but yet you're not really encompassing that in the imagery you're showing or the availability of your products, for example, yeah. or if only half of it is available in America, but the other half isn't available here. Yes, that's then, a common thing. Which is a common thing. Then, you know, you're going to run into problems eventually. And I think we're in such a world at the moment where people will call it out. You know, you yeah. have either journalists <laughs> or individuals who will just call it out and cause you a PR Mm-hmm. Shitstorm. <laughs> so one person who hasn't received fair representation is the white man among us, uh, Joel. Goldby, because it's time for his. It will will no one think of Joel Goldby, the white the millennial guy. man? The, the grave guy. The grave guy. Oh, well, he's sad. I was grieving. I I'm interrupting because I don't want to miss his music because he has chosen some really good music um, for this second hour. So. Before we continue our conversation, let's go into one of Joel's songs. Joel, why did you choose the Arctic Monkeys? Uh, Well, it's pretty simple. I'm from Chesterfield. They're from Sheffield. They're one of the best bands in the world. And when they came through, I was about 18 and every single band in Sheffield got signed en masse. Uh, This is 505, which is one of my favourites. Brilliant record. That was 505 by Arctic Monkeys, as chosen by Joel Golby, who's our guest today, along with Deja Ayodeli from the Black Skin Skincare Directory. Skin Directory. Skin Directory, I do apologise. Um, and Joel has just written a book um, called Brilliant Modern Life as Interpreted by Someone Who Is Reasonably Bad at Living It. That is published on February 21st. Um, I want to talk about my new obsession, please. AOC, AOC. otherwise known as Alexandria Acacio Cortez, Acacio Cortez. I've heard it different ways, and I put it through a pronunciation thing on Google yesterday, and I got about three different results. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why AOC is perfect. Yeah. So this is uh, the Congresswoman who you will have seen everywhere recently everywhere. for all sorts of reasons. She she um, pulled up the issue of financial corruption. 
the other day in Congress and, and, and the clip of her um, making quite a sarcastic line of inquiry um, went viral of her asking what the rules were for Congress people and indeed the President of the United States and she basically uncovered in very black and white terms that you can do what the hell you like if you're President <laughs> and so and so that went viral. Lots of people love her she's very very sound, she wore um, hoops as she um, what is the word, you're not inaugurated as a Congresswoman, you're sworn, sworn, in. sworn in thank you um, when she was sworn in, she wore huge gold hoops, as is her cultural tradition. Um, and that made the headlines. And she's back in the headlines this week because she has described in Elle magazine, I believe, and it's been covered by every other women's glossy and several newspapers, including The Guardian. Uh, she described her full makeup and skincare routine. And her skincare routine contains, I think, 12 steps. Joel, oh, I yeah. thought you would glaze. Straight to me. Yeah. I thought you would glaze over when I brought up this story, but your interest was piqued. Yeah, I like. I love hearing about people's skincare routines. It's a weird. I'm not going to go so far as to say fetish. That'd be weird. I've already <laughs> made it weird. But yeah, I find it weirdly fascinating. And also, like, I have problem skin. So if I see someone go like, "Oh, this helped," I'm like, "Ah," oh. and then I go down a Google hole, and then I'm just looking at sunscreens for the rest of the afternoon. You had a question for Joel and yeah, his... Yeah, so um, what is your... Yeah, you already told me you have a morning routine and you have an evening routine, which gladdens me. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what is it? What, what's the morning routine? Drop the routine, that's what you're saying. <laughs> so I uh, start the day yeah. with... Uh, at 5am. At 5 I get really early. No, um, I do... Um, I, I lean oily. I'm willing to make that admission on the radio. <laughs> so I have like a, a Kiehl's um, face wash. That it's, it's a blue tube and it's kind of oil free. So it doesn't make me extra oily mm -hmm. and it doesn't go super foamy. So it doesn't strip my precious little face. <laughs> then also sometimes I use one of those Clarisonic special uh, face washing machines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are good. But you've got to ease yourself in with those. Yeah, you've got, you've got to, to be go gentle. Once yeah. a day yeah. and then you work up, up to twice. But then it ran out of charge and I forgot to charge it. So for a while that's been out of my routine. And then I have that. I, I do a couple as a, a super drug serum, which is like the the hype three pound super drug serum in the morning. Is it my Simply Pure hydrating serum? You know it. Oh. Well, I think it How's was me that, hype, that made I it wonder. a thing. Yes, it's. Um, I love that serum. It's only three quid. Yeah. you can't do better for three quid serum no. wise than that. Boom. So bang that on. And then uh, I've got another thing I recently found that I got from some New Yorker article where someone described their skincare, and it's like this thing that sort of it, it's meant to be like a pollution mask that you wear against the day yeah. but basically it leaves me quite dry in again my very oily t-zone so i like a bit of that you've got the lexicon joel you really you're mm -hmm. acting like you're a novice but you have you the words like i know what i know my face <laughs> but do you wear sunscreen well, we're working up to that, aren't we? Because there's two different forms. But then I go and make a cup of tea. <laughs> he, knows he knows chemical and physical. Also, if it's if it's a bad day, or let's be honest, a hangover, there's a little ice mask that we wear over the eyes to sort of unpuff those. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, you've got to wear sunscreen because A, the sun ages you like nothing else. And B, where we get to the nightcare routine, there's a lot of acids and crap like that that but needs which to be protected ones? with sun. We will get there. Dear God, we haven't finished the morning yet. We're all going to do our own routines right it's not just you've me. made the aoc hours. look like a soap and water girl i know yeah. right? anyway. you definitely make me anyway you smear all that on it's a whole to do i can i can go on but we've only got two hours haven't we so 
I think it's wow. a very impressive and very impressed. correct routine. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. We'll, talk, we'll it's talk not, afterwards. It's not shabby. All props to you. Thank you. So the, what's really interesting for me, I, I suppose... I, I took this story quite personally to heart because what's lovely for me is that um, one of the things that I write about is beauty. I've been a journalist uh, for over 20 years and in the past uh, eight years I've had a beauty column as well. And when I first started writing that column, I saw lots of commissioning editors stop commissioning me for the political and opinion pieces I had previously been writing. Um, and those dropped off for a while when that column became a success. And I know for a fact, I know for a fact that it's because there is a perception that if one is interested in beauty, knows about beauty or clothes or whatever it is, baking, whatever traditional female pursuits people perceive them to be, um, you are assumed to not really know about anything else hmm. anymore. It shrinks your brain. And so what I loved about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that she is a congresswoman. I believe she's the youngest congresswoman. Mm -hmm. um, she advocates tuition-free public college, campaigns for universal health care. And here she was really unapologetically saying, I really, really look after my skin and I really like looking nice. And I suppose from my point of view, it just felt like such a breath of fresh air to hear somebody intelligent who has weighty concerns and works very hard in public service to say, yeah, I can be this too, because of course she can be that too. Mm -hmm. Everyone can be yeah, that too. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. She's just a complete breath of fresh air. And I love, I mean, I, I love her routine and it, it's a correct routine. And she mentions things in it like vitamin C and Vitamin sunscreen. C by morning, retinol, retinol at night. Retinol at night, which again, just gladdens my heart. And I just think you can be interested in beauty and be beautiful and have a tough job. And... It's again. It's that for me. It goes back to that. And whole, be a total badass and, and when interrogating people yeah, about financial corruption. Right? Yeah. yeah, beauty is about who said it. Beauty is about self-preservation as well. You know, it's it's so it's it's not just it, it's it's an act that she does for herself that makes her a happy person and enables her to be able to you know be confident and do her job and be amazing at it. And I just think it's I just think it's great. I I, I don't see what the any hoo-ha should be, you know, I think she's fantastic. Yeah. She's also very young, and I do think millennials are better at this. I think they're much better at this. At taking care of them? Yeah. Well, and, and better at not seeing a dichotomy where there isn't oh, one. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. I think they're better at it. And so, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, I'd be on sort of news night or something or doing the, the papers on Sky, and somebody would always tweet, why is she on... I've just Googled her and she writes about lipstick, like, all the time, every single time, Good without fail. I, um, I wrote something about Brexit a few months ago and a guy tweeted me and said... Um, he started arguing with me about Brexit and he said, oh, hang on, I've just seen that you've got a beauty column and so uh, never mind me, let's just call it a day. <sighs> and I, I, I've had those things all the time, but I do think younger people are better at not doing that. But it's still... It's still I mean, the fact we're talking about it is that her drop of, drop of the routine has, has been perceived by some people as, like, a political act, which is kind of yeah. insane. Like, she, yeah. can't, she yeah. can't exist in any space without someone kicking off. Well, and, and also, of course, she's been slagged off for it. Yeah, yeah. of course. She's been um, accused of, um, well, you know, 
you're not there to be vain. You're a congresswoman. You should be dealing with weightier matters as though she can't do I mean, two you, at one you in the same win. time. Because, I mean, one of the main criticisms of Hillary Clinton was always like, oh, well, her hair isn't yeah. nice and she's not feminine enough and she wears um, these pantsuits and... You cannot be too beautiful or... Madeleine Albright not beautiful mm, enough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, Condoleezza Rice, too strong-looking. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> Hard. Hard. Yeah. Yes. yeah. The same with Michelle Obama. Yes. Can't have Can't have nice sleeveless top and buff arms. That's not allowed either. Because she's obviously working out when she could be shaking children's hands and kissing maybe babies. That's, that's, maybe that's how she works out. Just line them up. 400 yeah. kids in a yeah. morning. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> she's not friendly. She's just vain. <laughs> just vain. Yeah, it was weird when that, that story kind of kicked off because I was like, well, what has she done? Is she doing something crazy, like mixing her acids wrong or something? You, and you then said, oh, no. Please, there's, there's just a certain section of journalists in the media or, or, or just general people who... It's, you just can't please them, so you're just better off doing what makes you happy and, and, and getting on with it. But mm. it's hilarious, isn't it? Because male politicians, especially in this country and also in America with different sports, have this routine of pretending to like football, right? So they, yeah. they all do this thing where they have to... They assign themselves a team when they're running as mm. Prime Minister or whatever, and then they pretend to like football. Nobody ever says, mm, it's just blokes kicking a ball around. You should be dealing with weightier issues. You should be saving the NHS. Yeah. But it's just sort of female It's the pursuits. beautiful games. Yeah. I read something, I think it was, was early on this morning, about how um, Mr Trump has... Um, That's he, polite of you. He, he wears... Uh, <laughs> I, I can't Mr. call him like President that. Trump, but he wears, he wears fake tan. Well, yeah. Why, why don't we talk about Cheeto. that? I know. But that, that, that's really interesting because the same week that AOC, I'm sorry to keep calling her that, but no, I would rather do I that like than that. insult her with bad pronunciation. <laughs> same. Um, AOC story came out and in the same week it was revealed, I mean, who gives a shit, but it was revealed that uh, President Trump uses uh, fake tan and dyes his hair. I like how that was revealed. As yeah. if we all didn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> Exclusive like, what? It was confirmed. <laughs> it was, it, we had confidence. We're just breaking taboos all over the place. Breaking news, we all have eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, someone went there. Um, But the stories broke at the same time and nobody nobody made that connection. Yes, exactly. And she came under fire. But what I love about her is how completely unapologetic she's been about it. She hasn't tried to justify her 12 minutes a day or whatever she's doing. Um, when she could be in Congress, she's just said, well, yeah, no, I like it. She's got I to wash her face at some point in the day. She's got to wash her face. Come on. Yeah. And I'm pretty Joel's sure like, she was 12 minutes amateur. <laughs> yeah, she was I mean, probably I am always late to work, but that's not the point. <laughs> it's not that long. Come on. No, I don't think it is. I'm, I'm sure maybe if it was in Elle magazine, and what, I'm sure she was asked. And yeah. yeah, she, she would have been explicitly asked. She would have said. I think it was on her Instagram And she gave an answer. Yeah. I mean, my God, I think it's just we're in this weird cultural moment where on one hand you have shows like Killing Eve and Russian Doll and these complex, not necessarily likable female characters being heralded. They're like, oh, oh, my God, women can be complicated. This is amazing. And then on the other hand, you have this sort of shit where it's like <laughs> Meghan Markle isn't allowed to, like, not want to talk to her dad. And then AOC can't, you know, wash her damn face at night. Like, <laughs> come on. It's, you know, as I said before, it's exhausting, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Also, I'm sorry, but she looks banging. I want oh to know God, what she she's so doing. Like, obviously, she's like really it's attractive. I'm sorry, I would quite like to. Yeah, I know. want to know everything that's on your face all of the time. Yeah, yeah. She uses good retinol. She must do. Can tell. Yeah, you can yeah. tell. She uses good retinol. Joel, why did you choose the Claxons? 
you asked me to pick some songs that <laughs> and uh, act like you just turned up with a load of songs. <laughs> oh right, okay. Well, you uh, no, you asked I did me, ask and you. basically this was this CD dropped when I was like first to second year of university, which is the most important time for taking music very seriously. That's true. And this was about the only CD I played for three years. Um, and it, it irritated everyone around me and this is one of my favourite songs of it. It's called It's Not Over Yet. was It's Not Over Yet by Claxons. That was chosen by writer Joel Goldby, who's chosen um, all the music for the second hour. I'm going to try and squeeze in another couple before we go off air. We've still got Deja with us um, from Black Skin Directory. And we've been talking about that and we've been talking about Joel's book. What is happening next, Joel? Are you going on tour with this book? Because I've been there and it is quite full on don't really know yet i mean this period itself is quite intense it's not out for for a week and a day um we're gonna try and do some sort of event um you know just so i can see what people who read my book look like that's more for me than anyone else what do you think they look like (laughs) male you. Me. Just you. Yes, me. Just, did you see the Esquire it's a cover? sad blokes. The, the, the American Esquire oh, guys. Oh, yes, I did. Yes, yeah, I which did. Which is basically a photo Hashtag. of me. So I yes. think it's just going to... Yeah, it's um, that kind of vibe. Very games workshop. But no, we're hoping that uh, it's, it's going to be a, a fair split. Um, and then there'll be one event at some point in the semi-near future. And then ideally when the, the riches and the awards and, and the prizes start to mm. roll in, then we'll organise a, uh, a secondary tour. So I can... Were you nervous delivering a manuscript that is in places so deeply personal and, dare I say it, vulnerable? It's a good question because... When I delivered it at the time, I kind of didn't think it was. And the reaction from people reading it, and especially the Guardian piece, um, you know, which people have had very sort of strong reactions to it because it seems to cover a lot of sad topics that tap into things. So I was surprised that people were having that reaction to a piece in my head. I was like, cool, funny. Like, I've finally written the first entirely funny piece about grief. And then people were like, oh, I'm crying. And I was like, ah. Yeah. And so when I delivered the the manuscript, I was like, cool, fine. I've, I've written the book I want to write and I'm really happy and proud of it. And it is a couple of shades more personal than I, than I normally write, but I didn't think so much. And the reaction to it has been really interesting because it wasn't what I was expecting at all and I guess as more people start to read it as of next week um you know that that's that's gonna keep on going or go the other way and it's gonna be completely interpreted in the way that I I wrote it but yeah I've I've been pleasantly but very surprised by how people have taken it so far it, it reservoirs, I think, in that you, you, when when people read things like that, they they sort of pull in the stuff that resonates for them personally. Mm-hmm. And even if you think you're being quite sort of happy-go-lucky or, or light yeah, yeah, in yeah. places, it's funny. Yeah, it's got jokes in and everything. <laughs> I promise. Um, some some of the things you describe are things that people, as you rightly say, of your age are starting to go through. You, yeah. You've had a tragic head start on it. But people are kind of squirrelling away the acorns, aren't they, for for mm-hmm. the stuff they're going through. But even as somebody 
much older than you, nice young man. Um, I, I, it resonated with me too because I found it, I found it very unsentimental, and lots and lots of what's written about death I find really sentimental, yeah. and that's not really the place I found myself in. No. It's very easy to go quite cloying with that and very sort of... Um, you will cry, you will cry. Yeah, and, yeah. and quite hallmark card tone, and, you know, a, a picture of a lily on some white card. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's so often not like that. Like, your life does still go on and, you know, you still do laugh at a joke on the day that your mum died and, and you sort of suck it back in and feel a bit weird. And, you know, this far removed from it, I think, uh, I think if I was still sort of kicking a can down the road and feeling entirely sorry for myself to make people cry then that'd be <laughs> then I'd need to have a little look at myself but yeah it's um it that's that's kind of what I was trying to capture the fact that these complex things happen to you but you're still the person you were it's just yeah you know do you think your mum knew that you had a book in you mm. yeah yeah my my writing career hadn't really uh, gone particularly anywhere when she did die. So I'd, I'd started to get bylines and um, I'd written... Uh, I think I'd written one piece of a Guardian she was very proud of, but that, that was about the level we got to. Um, so That's she, quite a big deal, though, for a mum, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm truly honest, that is, that is one of the sort of more bittersweet things about having the book out is... Yeah, yeah, I'm super proud of it, but like, oh man, would have been cool to to put it on her bookshelf. Yeah, um, but you know, again, I've written the essay now. I'll go on my system. I'll get over it. <laughs> Deja, do you think you're right about your experiences? Because actually, I know Fumi Feto has a, a, a yeah, book, a book coming, coming out. out yeah. um, I'd love to. I'd, I'd I'd love to. I I love I love the history of beauty and the history of the relationship between the beauty industry and black women or people of darker skin tones and there's a lot out there um and so i'd love to at some point i mean i've still got a six month old at the moment um which i need to sleep but um once i get that stop being selfish <laughs> once i master the sleep aspect of things i'd love to put um sit down and and actually craft something i think it would I think it would, it would be quite refreshing to see um, what that relationship is because I, I, I find stuff all the time. I go, wow. And I don't think a lot of people know about some of the stuff I, I mm. know about. And so it would be great at some point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Joel, tell us about Frank Ocean. Well, he's the best. Like, that's, that's <laughs> Do you the intro. love him? Yeah, like everything he does is incredibly good. Great. Great. I, I need to say it's good. Uh, kind of but he's also not a word. Joel is just not a word. So he's so good, and this is uh, from the second album, which I didn't get at first, and then I did, and this is my favourite song from it. It's called Self Control. Last night, oh, yeah. About your summer last night. I give you no play. Could I make it shine last night? Could I make it shine on the last night? Could we make it in? Do we have time? Ah. That was chosen by Joel Golby. Again, he um, has chosen all the music in the second hour. I'm going to try and play out with another one um, to get more bang for your buck. But we are still here with Joel and we're still here with Deja and we're still here with Kate Sevier, my co-host. But I think a number of people listening will want to know, Kate, what's going on with you? Uh, Kate was <laughs> the editor of The Pool. 
um, people who are listening, I presume, know about the pool because I was a columnist on the pool for several years. And I think people are concerned about the situation. I know you don't know much about it, but tell us where we're at. Tell us where you're at. <laughs> what well, do we know, Kate? Well, it's so nice to not just be talking about it in Twitter threads. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now we are still kind of waiting to know what what our fate is. Unfortunately, we still kind of don't know. Um, we were told it was going into administration. That hasn't happened yet. Um, there, as I'm sure people have probably seen on Twitter, uh, there's a fair amount of people that are due money, including people sat in this room. Um, so right now we're just in this weird, sad, depressing holding pattern where our readers are devastated because we're no longer there. The people who contributed to it and founded it are all devastated. So we're just kind of in a, a really kind of sad grieving process. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating as well because I don't, I'm not in a position where I can necessarily go and and just do something else. You're like, are oh, you looking for another job? And I'm like, well, I need to. I you're need kind to of treading out. water, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's a really, um, it's a really unfortunate situation. So are you with closed curtains in Sega Mega Drive or not? Are you in that no. space? No, I mean that my vibe is much more like uh, Netflix binging a finished Russian doll in like a day. So that's that's where I'm at. I'm okay. <laughs> Some people are like, how are you holding up? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm just, you know. Poor and sad, but you know, it's fine. As as journalists, it's saddening, right? Because mm. I think, you know, so much has happened around the pool where, you know, fingers are being pointed and people are rightly really upset yeah, about rightly, their money and everything. Yeah. And all of that stuff is crucially important. But I do think it's important to remember there's a very big issue behind it, which mm -hmm. is nobody really has cracked how to monetize free content. Yeah. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our industry? Yeah. And it's important, I think, for everyone, whether they love the pool, hated the pool, whatever, mm -hmm. to bear in mind... Next time they moan about an advert on something, next time they moan about yeah. um, commercial projects in mm -hmm. newspapers, magazines, they have to bear in mind that without those things, they cease to get yeah, their that's free content. It, that's how it works, you know. And I think that there's a, a really interesting wider conversation in this industry um, with layoffs that have happened at Vice, at BuzzFeed, at BuzzFeed, HuffPo. Yeah. It's, it's really distressing, but I think that um, there's obviously common threads that run throughout all of this, such as, you know, monetizing content, but then also inflated valuations from, you know, investors and venture capitalists and, um, you know, a gross mismanagement of money and companies that expanded worldwide when they probably had no business doing so when they hadn't learned to scale yet and hadn't learned that you don't just throw, you know, millions of pounds of headcount at a problem. Um, so I think that, yes, there is a sort of like panicky, like, oh, my God, what does this mean for the future of journalism? There's also, you know, much simpler problems such as why were these, why were these you know businesses expanding when mm -hmm. they shouldn't have been and mm -hmm. and when who in charge knew this and then kept expanding anyway you know and, and is it a bit of a wanking competition between companies of showing their might by Absolutely. having you know these large offices and lots of people and and denying people their lovely unions. apple computers yeah and, yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that, the, yes, there's a, a much wider problem with, you know, monetizing content. That's a huge issue. But also the people who are in charge of the money and the people who uh, are in this sort of weird wanking competition where, you know, having an exotic fruit salad dude come in every day to make sure that the staff has free fruit <laughs> salads. Is that it, a thing? What, Tell that me that's it, a thing. Oh, I've, yeah, I have it on good authority that that's a thing. Um but, you know, why is that a thing? And why are you pivoting to video and then pivoting back to video? Just pay it's people just and let ridiculous. them buy their own yeah. snacks. Let them unionize. 
be more responsible, I think, is a lot. I'm kind of angry about all of this. So I think there's a lot of uh, responsibility and accountability that um, is to kind of look at before we kind of all go into a panic about monetization and it's these sites being dead. It's quite an awful... It feels like a real sort of parable for the times of giving millennial snacks instead of a union. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's but some really expensive crisps. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Here's some McCoys <laughs> and uh, some seltzer water. Chin up, love. Yeah. No union for you. Yeah. Joel, what do you want next? Do you want uh, cherry or do you want work from home? Um, the story with work from home, which I know you've got queued up next because I heard the first beat of it after the phone <laughs> came, was you asked me for songs that were, that were significant to me in some way and um, I got fixated on this song on a particularly savage hangover once and listened to it 18 times in one day. Wow. Bloody hell. So we're going to play out with it. Work from home by Fifth Harmony as chosen by Joel Golby. His book is out now. It's so good. Kate Sevier be back next month. And Deja Ayadeli, thank you so much for joining thank us. You Please for come me. back with your I next will. project. We'd I love will. to have you. you. We'll see you next month playing out with Joel's last choice. I worry about nothing. I'm sitting pretty